Hey friends, welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast, uh, the last in a series that we're calling Vices and Virtues. And actually, to tell the truth, this is kind of a, an add-on. Michael and I, as we've discussed the seven deadly sins, and that's been the series we've been on, we have found ourselves kind of overlapping a previous discussion of what is called the Enneagram. And, and I'll stop right here and say, if you don't understand what the Enneagram, if that's a new word to you and you don't know what it means, we've done a series on that, and this discussion will likely not make a great deal of sense if you haven't watched that series or if you haven't learned something about the Enneagram in another context. Having said that, we found ourselves kind of intertwining these two conversations at some points, and we wondered about reflecting on the way in which they might fit together as a as a kind of bonus episode and a way to close out this series. Yeah, so uh, you know, when we were doing the Enneagram, which is now I think a couple of years ago actually, uh, the books that we were studying as we went along that process actually did often make note of some connections to the seven greatest sins. At the time, I'll admit to you, uh, I didn't give that a whole lot of credence or thought uh, because I, quite frankly, hadn't done a lot of research on the seven uh, deadly sins. And so certainly as we were going through this process, there were a few times where it just kind of struck me that, you know, I could see how maybe if you were thinking of this Enneagram type, how how there might be a connection to a, a particular kind of sinfulness, especially if someone was living into uh, the, the sort of... Um, a weak part of their number at, at some point. And yeah, so as that sort of uh, thought spurred, uh, Clint and I both shared back and forth, yeah, I wonder what the Enneagram would have to say about these sins. And then we got to the end of our in-person sessions uh, and had a great discussion, uh, the last video, uh, if you want to check that out. Um, but now we sort of turn to that final, maybe you call it like an epilogue almost, and, and offering some candid and, and almost in some cases off-the-cuff thoughts on maybe how these two things might intersect in interesting ways. And I think instinctively, we kind of understand that there are differences in the way that people are tempted. You know, some of us are just not greedy people. It, for whatever reason, the idea of having a lot of stuff, the idea of climbing a ladder and being recognized it is just not a temptation for some of you. On the other hand, maybe the same person is prone to fits of anger and, and prone to lash out at people and kind of do that explosion thing. And so there is a kind of home base to most of our struggles with sin. We find ourselves kind of going back to some of our familiar struggles often. And we we just wondered about the ways in which the Enneagram, which essentially shows us something of our personality, um, maybe that's not quite a big enough word, but our, our personal makeup and the seven deadly sins might correspond. So again, um, if you have some work to do on the Enneagram and you're not up to speed, we'll, we'll try to remind you of some of that, but you'll likely want to go do that first. Um, Michael, we jump in at the beginning, type one, the reformer. And just again, as a refresher course, reformers are prone to be very competent, perfectionist, very driven, kind of a sense of justice, a kind of a sense of rightness and righteousness. Um, ones bring a lot to the table, but, you know, it's interesting to think about what 
their Achilles heels for them might be? Yeah, so I, I think at the outset of a conversation like this, you've got to be aware that uh, I don't think you can peg any one particular sinfulness against any one particular mm -hmm. Enneagram type. I, actually, that's one thing I found very compelling about the Enneagram, and I think it was a helpful frame for me as I came to the Seven Deadly Sins, is this idea that they are all interconnected. And so uh, I want a name that, you know, I don't think that any particular number is going to have a particular sin, but I, I couldn't imagine talking about ones, Clint, without at some point bringing up pride. Um, because I believe ones have this this deep inner uh, sense of the ideal, of the way that the world should be. And you mentioned the word justice. You know, justice for a one, I think, is bringing the world to the place that it should have been from the start. That if if you looked at the world and saw all of its brokenness, I think a one can imagine, well, you would just fix this and then you would do this. And then, you know, they work diligently to make that process possible. Of course, that can be a force for great good, but the temptation to a one is to believe that their analysis of what is right or good or ideal is accurate. Or maybe put differently, that it's a whole analysis that they can see all the perspectives, which obviously no human can. And so if you're willing to admit that, the sin of pride is, uh, I think, a particularly salient sort of sin to a one because there's this idea that the self is capable of analyzing and seeing what is wrong. And, you know, even if there's some humility to say, I know I couldn't do all of it, I do think that initial frame may be a very tempting thing to one. You'd have to resist this idea. Well, maybe I don't see the ideal as well as I think I do. And I think that might be a struggle. I went to the exact same place, Michael. I think pride is the obvious temptation for a one people who care very much about being right and doing right, people who are driven by that idea of the right way to do things, and people who are somewhat offended by and somewhat um, frustrated by people who they don't feel live up to those very high standards that they embody. Um, possible that there's some anger. Ones tend to carry grudges, so there may be a sort of probably not big flashes of anger. There may be some sort of resentment stuff that happens in ones. I suppose the same could be true of envy. If a one looks at someone who, by their estimation, doesn't really deserve the accolades or the success that they have received, if, they, if the one doesn't think that they have earned that, I suspect that would be very frustrating to them. So I, I think anger and envy could be in the mix. And of course, any sin could affect any person, but as we try to make some generalities, I, I think pride stands out as the obvious most likely suspect. Yeah, you know, I think that the one is probably uh, resistant in some ways uh, to things like gluttony, uh, because I, I think the one intuitively and innately knows how not ideal that is. I think it would be a real contradiction of self-identity, probably, to give in to something uh, like that. I think, you know, maybe a one does find themselves in a position of anger and wrath, you know, but I, I doubt that that is a thing uh, that simmers forever unless there's been some due cause that starts it, unless there's a thing that the one doesn't feel that they have agency to resolve. Maybe that eats away over time. Um, but, you know, I, I also would say uh, 
you know, maybe a one struggles with greed in the sense that, well, there's a thing out there I'd like to have, or I think it'd be ideal for me to have, I, I should possess. But on the other hand, I think lots of ones are so committed to the idea of pursuing the ideal, they really don't give a lot of time and attention to the stuff that other people have, the stuff that you might be envious of, because fundamentally they're they're working to their own vision as opposed to uh, navigating based off of the choices and decisions of other people. They're far, they're far more internally uh, driven than that. So, you know, I think there is some resistances there. And if you're a one in the Enneagram, you might say, yeah, I, there are some things that are just less uh, maybe uh, initially tempting for me or less compelling in in that whole set. And uh, I, I can imagine how that might be the case also. Yeah, and it may be counterintuitive, but the, the interesting place that a one could end up, I suppose, is sloth, which is probably not a part of the makeup of very many ones at all. And and yet, if a one became overwhelmed with the idea that I just can't measure up, I I just can't be good enough, I just can't hold this incredibly high standard I set for myself. I can see them kind of going the other way, mailing it in and just kind of shutting down. And um, I, I, that's probably rare, but I imagine that it could happen in the life of a one. Counterpoint, though, it may not be sloth as the person laying on the couch. It may be acedia, though, and definitely jump into that conversation if you miss that seven deadly sin conversation. Uh, where the one, I could easily see a one filling themselves with busyness to avoid dealing with the the awareness of self and the reality that this is that this vision of what should be is deeply influenced or driven by my own desire and not necessarily uh, what I would like to to believe that it, that it's whole that I haven't figured out. I think a one might be tempted to f to be overly busy, which is another form of that thing that we talked about called acedia. Yeah, agreed. So some thoughts on the one. Uh, now we move to the two, the the helper, caring, compassionate, generous, a people pleaser, um, kind of possessive. And, you know, again, Michael, and keep in mind those of you that did Enneagram with us or that know something about the Enneagram, um, the numbers being close to each other tends to mean that they share a little bit. And so, uh, again, I went to pride thinking that the two loves to place themselves in the middle of things. The two loves to keep track of who they've helped and who owes them things when they're not healthy. At, at their best, twos are more gracious than that. But when twos struggle, it often is this with this sense of uh, everything I've done for them and they don't appreciate me, which I think pride could be rearing its ugly head in that. Um and maybe greed, N not in the sense probably of materialism, but in in terms of people's time, people's attention. I, I think twos can be very demanding when they're unhealthy, and I, I didn't know where that fit. It seemed to me that greed is probably the place on the list of the deadly sins that something like that would be couched. Oh, that's interesting, Clint. I, I was uh, probably going to word that through the lens of envy, mm. uh, because I think that uh, for me, when I think of the two who has given and given and given and given, I think the refrain I hear over and over again is, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could just have a simple, quiet night like everyone else instead of volunteering to do this thing or baking cookies or delivering this thing? Wouldn't it be nice if someone thought 
of me like I think of everyone else. And if that resonates with you, I think it's easy to look at other people's lives or what we consider to be, you know, maybe grass is greener and to sort of dream about what that might look like. Uh, you know, so I, I think that that, Clint, is maybe just a different way of framing what, what you're saying there. I think another one um, that I, I just want to affirm, uh, I was also going to say pride. And I think you're also going to find pride in an interesting way in number three. I, I don't think uh, these three, one, two, and three, I think do share pride in a very substantial way. I think for two, uh, it, it's the awareness of what people need, which they are often very good at. In other words, I think the two is often very right because they spend so much time and thought honing their sense of what people do need. The danger is when they believe that uh, they are the arbiter of that or that they uh, have identified that other people don't even know maybe what they, maybe people don't even know they themselves what they need. And the moment that a two does that and they start filling in blanks that maybe they weren't even invited to fill in, that's when pride really begins to, to set in deep. And I think that could be a real danger if you're a two. Yeah, absolutely. And we probably should have said at the outset that we are clearly talking about the the least healthy or the less healthy expressions of our types because yeah. we're specifically dealing with a list of sins. And so there are wonderful things about all of these types, but we're thinking about where are they weak in regard to the seven deadly sins. The, you mentioned the three, Michael, the achiever, uh, pragmatic, success-oriented, kind of driven, image conscious, all of those things that we tend to think of in that category. Uh, where do you think their root struggle might be? Uh, so I think pride uh, very much lives in that uh, conversation as well. Like I said, I do want to point out, I think that this is a surprising turn uh, because I think threes uh, are so outer devoted with their attention. They're so aware of the external that in many ways, the three comes to believe that there is no center, that there's no self, that there's no deep personal sort of identity. And when one begins to do that, essentially, instead of being prideful in the sense that you're haughty and puffed up, you become prideful in the belief that you are the only person in the world who doesn't have an identity. It's a really kind of interesting shift, I think. And what happens in that shift is, uh, the three no longer takes any kind of responsibility for their own identity making. And that is a form of pride because it says to yourself that I'm not worthy of being the person God made me to be, that I am a special case, that I am apart from others. Everyone else deserves my time and attention, but I don't. And that's a very kind of dangerous, insidious, backwards kind of pride. Uh, but I think it's very much at the root of that experience of the world. Yeah, I, I had pride as well. Um, interestingly enough, I had envy. I think threes being people that tend to look up the ladder, that tend to look at, at other people to sort of frame their own sense of what they should do and who they should be. I, I think envy is probably the, somewhere in that mix, possibly, and also gluttony, um, not in regard to food, probably or necessarily, but in the idea that threes tend to overdo things in order to get people's attention, in order to stand out, in order to succeed or be recognized, that the three can find themselves 
um, gluttonous in the sense of not having healthy boundaries and knowing when to stop. Yeah, I actually think anything that um, could possibly be used as a tool uh, for the sake of self uh, advancement and sort of fitting into the crowd, I think is a real danger for the three. So I, I think uh, you could easily name here uh, things like envy, uh, which was also on my list, but I think lust, I think gluttony, both would apply because I think there's a sense in which uh, the pursuit of those kinds of goods could be perceived in some cases as being mm. successful. And uh, wherever that theme lives for a three, I think it's very clearly uh, going to draw them into it. Uh, I, I do want to underscore, I think envy uh, is probably the, the strongest force for a three would be my guess because of its external nature, because you're looking out at the other. That is very much one-to-one with a, with a three's experience of the world. So I, I would name, if you're going to pick one for the three, I mean, I, I think I would pick envy. Yeah, that makes sense. That brings us to four, the individualist. Um, fours are, remember, sensitive, uh, tend to be withdrawn, kind of melancholy, self-absorbed, sometimes temperamental. They, ha- they have an experience of uh, kind of whiplash emotions. They, they are comfortable being sad in many instances. Um, you know, Michael, the, the temptations that stand out for me would perhaps be sloth in the sense of apathy that mm-hmm. fours t- tend to isolate themselves mm-hmm. and in their not healthy moments that they tend to withdraw that sense of melancholy is very much express expresses some of our conversation on sloth. You know, interestingly enough, maybe also lust um, fours drawn to the idea of relationships that go beyond what quote unquote average people have, what other people have. And I, I think, you know, four is kind of the category of many of the great artists historically, and how many of them have we seen when they melt down, it ends up being drugs and lust and, and those kind of very base behaviors. And so I, I think the four is drawn in those ways, perhaps when they're not healthy. Yeah, I think if you're willing to look initially at the four as the one who very much has a a very strong interior experience, then it might make sense that a four might be drawn to those very heavily external kinds of sins. I I very much agree. I think lust, I think even gluttony could probably fit there. This idea of I'm going to fill this internal uh, pang, this sense that something's not entirely right or whole with me. And be easy to fill that with some external, especially maybe even physical kind of thing. It, often these folks are very, very physically able. I mean, they're creative. They can make things exist in the world that, that didn't exist before. Um, that's an amazing gift. And, you know, I think that there's a kind of externalizing that happens there. I think there's a kind of simultaneous internalizing. Like if I could get this person in my heart, or if I could get this uh, possession or this status, you know, whatever that might be, there may be a sense of meeting that perceived gap between who I should be and who I am. And I, so I think there, there could be a kind of um, placeholder filling that would be particularly mm-hmm. tempting to the fore. Which might bring greed into the mix. 
the, the idea of climbing a mountain, of having a lot, of having the right people, of having the right experiences, um, that may be something that could show up as well. Uh, that that moves us on to the five, the, the sort of investigator, um, you know, f- think your introvert, your reader, your architect, your engineer, um, generally a little bit of isolation, a little bit of withdrawal, um, deep love of information, categorizing things, keeping things mentally, uh, a lot of internal life for the investigator. Um, this wasn't for me a natural one, Michael. I'm not sure. I think there are lots of ways this could go. I think in regard to relationships, we might talk about a sin like sloth. Sometimes fives are not good at nurturing relationships. They're, they're not, they, they don't sort of natively keep up with people real well. They don't, sometimes they don't notice things. Sometimes they're not attuned and attentive to people. Pride. I mean, they, they do tend to be pretty sharp. They tend to be well read. They tend to be deeply involved in the things that interest them. Um, greed in the sense that they treasure stuff, information often, but sometimes that could turn into other things. And, and there is a sort of natural drive in a five that could lead itself to wanting more, which so maybe greed, but um, I, I didn't have one that just jumped out. I don't know if you had a different experience. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I might lift up a couple here. I think I might say envy. Uh, some of mm. the folks that I um, think of as maybe this being their primary number, I think there is a, a sense of um, disappointment when they look at others who are maybe less well-read or less capable and they are advanced. I think there is a kind of uh, disappointment. I, I think of lots of the academic profession where when you get that book published by that one publisher that's really famous, uh, there's often a lot of uh, kind of back chatter, you know, grumbling like, oh, they didn't deserve that or I, I could have written that better than that. Uh, I, I, so I think the acclamation of information and and a person who works very hard to sort of hone that ability to frame and understand, I think could very easily uh, both see in someone else who's advanced uh, a, a disappointing kind of envy. And I think there's also maybe a, a kind of longing for life that's maybe even more simple. I mean, I think some of those folks I think of uh, live in very complicated, nuanced mental lives. And sometimes they just love to be able to be uh, a little bit more um, whimsical. They just be able to throw off the chains. And and so there may be some envy uh, in that. Um, I, I also think, you know, potentially um, there could be a room there for some of the physical sins, you know, the idea of gluttony, the idea of lust, the idea of filling uh, a, a body instead of a mind may be particularly compelling uh, to these uh, individuals. Uh, you know, the thing I think that makes it interesting is they may not be tempted towards the relational sins, something like wrath, uh, you know, maybe even something like greed, uh, because of the fact that th- they just simply don't really frequent the social encounters as much by nature of who they are. Uh, that said, that is itself a possible place for sinfulness. There may be a kind of rejection of relationship, a kind of avoiding of the richer fullness of human interaction. And to whatever extent that might be, 
um, some of these other sins may actually present themselves in some strange and alternative sort of under-the-surface ways. Yeah, I think the the five is sort of a, a funnel. I mean, in, to some extent, I think maybe all of the sins could find their way in. You know, in a strange way, they're kind of the counterbalance to the seven in that they tend to overdo it, though they tend to overdo it internally, yeah. not externally. Right. And so things like lust and greed may be uh, a part of that struggle. Uh, I think that's interesting, and it would be um, be fascinating to talk to some fives and see how they felt they interacted with a list like the seven deadly sins. Yeah. That brings us to six, uh, the loyalist, committed, uh, care about society, care about structure, generally either very much like or very much dislike status quo, depending on which side of the six fence they fall on. Um, I think, again, you know, probably pride may rear its head here. Michael, uh, the six likes to be convinced they're right. In fact, they use those structures to convince themselves they're right. They love the idea of my team. Um, they, they go all in kind of on the, the way it either should be or shouldn't be. The, the, again, depending on how they're wired, uh, I suppose that makes room for anger too, especially if they live on that contra six side where they're against mm-hmm. structure, uh, then they, they sort of want to tear things down. Um, and an unhealthy way, probably even prone to violence potentially. But, um, anger and pride were the two that came to mind most quickly for me. Yeah, I'm going to just straight up agree with that. Uh, I think I would have maybe started with the anger and then got to the pride. I, I think of the six probably being most tempted by anger, uh, and that may not be right, but I think the reason for that is uh, when you live in a very uh, sort of contradictory relationship with the world that surrounds you, when when one of your primary goals is safety, stability, reliability, and you live in a world which we all know is is constantly not that. The, the world cannot be controlled. Uh, though we can try to find a safe place in it, the world is by definition not safe. And so because of that, I do think there is a kind of burning ember that always lives inside a six, a kind of uh, anger that the world is not as the world could be and should be, a different than the one, whereas I think the one's trying to reach for an ideal. I think the six is seeking a sense of internal stability and security and safety. And in the process of desiring it, but never acquiring it, I think it's very easy to see how a six would uh, be angry, uh, both angry with those who are maybe closest in, in personal relationships that they uh, certainly if there's a kind of failure and that failure impacts that sense of self and stability, how quickly that might turn into anger at that person. Um, and then, of course, you know, in the world that's highly politicized, in the world in which uh, there's there's teams and back and forth and fighting, uh, how easy it would be to identify with one of those teams and to to very much uh, reject and, and angrily attack uh, whoever's on the other side. So I, I, I would have picked uh, anger, but I think pride's there as well. That was on my list too. Yeah, those those spoke to me as well. That brings us to seven uh, sort of uh, an interesting group of people, the enthusiasts, uh, life of the party, um, involved in lots of stuff, kind of ADD, scattered, busy, 
all of those kind of things. And, and interestingly enough, Michael, I think of the sevens as particularly bro- prone to the physical sins, the excessive right. sins. So uh, lust, gluttony, greed, if not material, certainly of experience, you know, wanting to try everything, do everything, maybe not have everything, though I, I suspect that can be in the mix as well. But I, I think those physical sins are probably particularly compelling and particularly tempting for sevens. Yep, absolutely. Uh, maybe another way to look at this is I think of the seven as often being driven by the intense inner need to not think about it and, you know, to not really think about self, to not really process one's emotions, to not really come to grips with a difficult history or uh, things that uh, the seven would rather not be. But instead of slowing and facing that, uh, they often run and they try to outrun it. They try to run faster. They try to find ways to distract. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think from that vantage, it would make sense then that any tool that would help uh, really bring in experiences to distract from that process, the thing that needs done, but instead filling it with the things that maybe want to be done. I think th- those certainly fit the list. Lust, gluttony, greed, the, all of that, I think, fits there. Um, I would say maybe a strange one that you might not think of to be on the list, but I would add to the list, I, I do think is pride. Uh, I think sevens have a unique uh, form of pride in this idea that they shouldn't have to slow down and face it, that they should get to be the life of the party, that the attention should be on them, that as long as they keep living out that kind of external uh, draw, they have a very compelling kind of presence in most settings. And I think that that is itself a a form of pride. And and in the sevens case, maybe even particularly destructive because it crafts this narrative that they keep living into that is good for them to not face these things, when in fact, I think that's a very dangerous thing for the soul. Yeah, and then I think you'd also probably have to lay at their feet acedia. When we talked about sloth, we mentioned that one of the ways it can manifest itself is not laziness, but a sort of hyper-busyness that never really stops long enough to have an inner life. And that can be the very definition of seven, who then, because of that, uses these other sins to accomplish that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I, I bet that's pretty close. I feel like that's a likely scenario for a seven. Uh, brings us to eight, the, the challenger, uh, a, a lot of confidence, um, kind of willful, confrontational um, people who tend to want to throw themselves into the front, people who want to challenge others, people who tend are wired to kind of push back on everything, sometimes for no real reason other than that's what they what they find themselves doing. Um, you know, Michael, I think eights are people who value or at some point maybe even crave intensity. So again, I think physical sins, I, I think anger, I think lust, I, I think greed, maybe not in the sense of procuring and having, but in the sense of winning. Mm-hmm. You know, if if your neighbor has one car, the eight might want a second one just to kind of stay on top of the heap like that. And it wouldn't probably be about the things themselves, but about what it communicated. And so I, I, those are the places I went right away. 
Yeah, I think eight may actually be a, a fascinating sort of number on the Enneagram in the sense that I think there may be a, a presenting sin, and then there may be sins that are actually deeper and not often seen. I think most folks would think eight, and they would immediately think anger and wrath. I think the eight is generally dialed up to number 10, and people in society experience them to be unbelievably intense and I think an eight walks away from an encounter and thinks, ah, that was kind of a four. You know, that got some words were shared there. And another person walks away thinking like, oh, my goodness, that was an all out kind of conflict. And I think so people may pin uh, anger on an eight because of that. What I think uh, may be interesting would be to dig under the surface, though, to see that the actual sinfulness may not be driven entirely by anger itself, but rather a sense of loss or a sense of lack. Uh, a kind of covering that may happen there. And that, I think, would ease, be easy for an eight to to flit in and out somewhere between pride, lust, gluttony. I, I think there could be a sense in which, you know, these things could grow together to meet whatever that individual person's sort of inner need actually was, what whatever that um, strength uh, has been built up for the purpose of may indeed be the thing that could become a seedbed for one of these sins as well. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think probably as in most places, pride is very likely to find its way into the life of an eight. Um, confident, the idea of sort of who's in charge, the challenge, you know, the idea that they have their sort of standing to do that in most circumstances. I think pride can be another struggle. That lands us on nine. The peacemaker, um, easygoing, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, um, and, you know, at times complacent. And the, the most obvious, the most obvious one here, Michael, I think is sloth. Yep. The idea that nines really sort of, they like to keep people happy so that those people then leave them alone. Um, they, and they tend to withdraw. I think under that, Underneath that, though, while that might be the most obvious, I, I think anger, certainly, they're part of that anger triad. And I think, you know, the, the, the stressed nine is very likely to sort of burst out. You know, they keep a lot behind the dam. And when the cracks start, um, it usually explodes. Um, there's a sense in which the nine hides themselves, gluttony. Something like that, a, a sort of trying to quiet the internal dialogue with an outside thing. I, that may be in the mix for some nines. And in a strange way, I, I think envy. Um, less of wanting what people have and more that sense of quiet. And if I didn't have to deal with these things, I might be able to have more peace. And and I that that sort of quest for that quietness for a nine, I think, in an interesting way, could lead them toward envy. Yeah, I think another aspect of that, too, might be the the longing for another person's drivenness or another person's mm -hmm. ability to sort of put themselves out there. I think nines often feel that the world is very loud, and so people who can really navigate that strongly, I, I, I could see a nine looking at them with some envy and saying, hmm. I wish that I had that. I wish that I w didn't have to fight so hard uh, to move things ahead. Because I don't. Uh, I think many nines would say, "I don't even know what I'm fighting for or towards." Uh, I, I'm just sort of trying to make it through this day. And you know, so, 
obviously you don't talk about a nine. Um, I, in fact, I think almost every Enneagram text um, named the nine struggle as being with a version of sloth. Um, and, and so I think that there's a particular sort of um, maybe pureness to that for their struggle. That said, uh, that's that's in large measure because in lots of ways, nines, I think, do have antibodies to a lot of these other things. I mean, I, nines aren't particularly mm. greedy. They're not out there looking to enrich themselves. They, they legitimately do have very wholesome motives. And, you know, though, yeah, that maybe they would be tempted by lust or gluttony. I think that the nine often is going to be Teflon to some of those things because they're, they're really looking for more of an inner life experience than they are an external one. So uh, maybe... You know, if I had to really be blatant about it, I think I would label a majority of it uh, for a nine lives somewhere in that wrath and uh, somewhere in that sloth area. And, um, you know, largely, I think in lots of other places, they they have some some good product protective mechanisms. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think a good one that the nine is generally not out trying to win anything. Right. They just want to be left alone. They just want a sense of of peacefulness, of sort of stability, really. And, you know, sloth, one of the words that comes up is apathy. And when you describe apathy to a nine, I think they just say, I live there. You know, the yeah. idea of trying to make yourself care and trying to bring yourself to get everything done and try not to be overwhelmed, but try to really get after it. And the, and that sense of apathy of just, I don't want to. And the nine goes, yeah, wait, what? Yeah, that's just life. Right. So I, I think certainly sloth is is probably the place they be, they start from, at least by by constitution. You know, Clint, I think one of the things I, I find most helpful here in this conversation, and I just want to bring up this circle for you here, is the thing that the Enneagram does that I find so helpful that is often not clear in like the personality type things is instead of it trying to put you in a box and say, here you are, this is what you are, I think the Enneagram is far more of a journey understanding that you start at one place on this circle, you see how the, the numbers one through nine stretch around the circle. And the idea with the Enneagram is that every single one of these contains an image of God, that each one is a conditional sort of human instantiation of good things. But each one also has its weaknesses, and of course, we focused on that uh, today from the lens of sinfulness. So the the story of the Enneagram is how you make your way around the circle, how you how you go from whatever number you are to embody the best of these other numbers, so that you can you can engage sort of the wholeness of the story. If you're willing to look at the Enneagram that way, I think it has fascinating implications for these sins that we've been talking about. Because it would be easy for us, I think, each to sort of feel that one or, or maybe a second sin that really hit home, that just we, we realized when we went through the study, oh man, yeah, I've got a lot of envy or I've got a lot of pride or wow, anger's always on my doorstep. Well, whatever you know that might be for you. What the Enneagram gives us is this idea of the journey around the circle and what the what that may give us in the conversation of sinfulness is that so too, though we may have one or two places of uh, substantial impact, the rest of these are also working in often very subconscious ways. And so 
Can we become people who embody the virtues around that entire circle? Can we slowly grow as Christians? Uh, because as we do that, I think it has a cumulative effect. As we go around the Enneagram circle, we understand these other types and we try to embody the best of those images of God. So the same as we embody these virtues, we, I do think, become more and more naturally resistant to the kind of temptation that these seven sins may have over us. There's a, a kind of cumulative effect there that at least as we went through this study, I thought that's a really helpful frame. Instead of thinking of sinfulness as a, a, a tally sheet where we mark off, oh, I've got that and you've got that, it becomes a, a kind of navigational resource for the growth of our own Christian discipleship. And I think our I think our background, our heritage helps us there, Michael, because as Reformed Christians, we sort of start with the premise that sinfulness is going to find its way into every life, that, hmm. w- that inevitably, as sinful people, we are going to have an experience of brokenness, whether it be conscious or not. And and the idea of our faith is that it opens our eyes to that brokenness and allows us to to begin to see how the grace of Christ may work in us to push against that brokenness and move us toward wholeness. And I think you know the Enneagram conversation is interesting because it it essentially prov- provides a framework for us to say as a person who tends to be like this, you might find yourself struggling more often with this brokenness than this brokenness. And you may find yourself sort of have having a little bit of immunity to to this part of the, the human struggle, this part of the sinful temptation. But you're going to need to be careful over here, perhaps. And I, and I do think Without wanting to put people in boxes and pigeonhole, I do think that kind of map can be helpful as we do self-examination and as we ask hard questions about, okay, given the way that I am or the way that I'm trying to be, where is it that I'm doing well and where is it that I might be prone to struggle? And I do think that can have some real upside for us. Yeah, and very briefly, I, I don't want to continue on too long. I just want to make a quick note here. I think that there is a relational communal sense here that we might miss uh, because the seven deadly sins is very much, I think, a self-reflective tool. But be aware that if you don't struggle with greed, lust, envy, uh, if you don't struggle with uh, anger or wrath or sloth, if there's an area where you are naturally somewhat I'm not going to say immune, that's not the right word, but but if you have some antibodies to those sins, uh, surely in the midst of your Christian community, there are those who could use that blessing and that gift. There is a kind of uh, beauty that comes as Christians come together and as we support one another in that effort. So if you have a Christian friend and you see them going out and buying another luxury thing that they didn't need and you've seen that habit over and over and over again. There's a kind of blessing in having a Christian friend that says, uh, you know, wow, another car, another this or another that. And, you know, clearly, I mean, that's tricky and and we've always got to be aware of it. But if we have the kind of relationship with other Christians, we can be honest with, with one another. There's a kind of benefit that comes to the whole community when you recognize, yeah, I, I have some strengths here. 
And there are others who inevitably don't have those strengths. And that's a very kind of Pauline understanding of the church, but I think it can be very helpful um, to recognize it's not all about, hey, look at me, I'm a sinner. Um, though we talk about that a lot in the Reformed tradition, it's also, hey, look at the blessing and grace that God has given to me. How, how does that contribute to help my brothers and sisters in Christ? That also exists, and it, it's worth noting in the conversation. Yeah, because the the most dangerous sins, I think, are the ones we refuse to deal with. And mm. so, in you know, that experience of saying, in this area, I've I've struggled, but I may be able to through that struggle help some other people, or perhaps I may be able to speak into an area that is a struggle for someone else, less so for me. And so, yeah, there is a certain communal aspect to that. Well, friends, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope this was helpful. Um, we I, we're going to be honest. This is kind of one that just grew out of our conversations, and we kind of wanted to give it a shot. So maybe there's something in it that sparks some thought, and if so. Great. We appreciate you listening. Um, we'll be starting another series soon, and we'll let details out on that here pretty quick. But we're grateful that you would spend this time listening, thinking through these things with us. As always, we're open to comments and feedback. Let us know what you think, and we'd love to hear from you. See you later.